This Week in Startups is brought to you by BetterHelp, providing access to easy, affordable, and private professional counseling anytime, anywhere. Get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash twist. That's betterhelp.com slash twist. Send Pro Online from Pitney Bowes. Save time and money no matter what you ship or mail. Try it free for 30 days and get a free 10-pound scale when you visit pb.com slash twist. And NetSuite by Oracle, the business management software that handles every aspect of your business in an easy-to-use cloud platform. Schedule a free product tour and receive your free guide, Six Ways to Run a More Profitable Business, at netsuite.com slash twist. The technology industry is fickle. Every time we see some great new technology, it takes multiple waves for it to actually stick and become a technology that becomes part of the fabric of industry or consumers' daily lives. Look at electric cars. 100 years ago, cars started as electric. We then had electric cars 20 years ago, and it took multiple multiple waves of founders and entrepreneurs to figure out how to make electric cars actually stick. Look at VR. We had the Game Boy glove and all these different VR headsets over time. We've been talking about it since the 80s. And now Oculus comes out, gets bought by Facebook, and still nobody's using them. We're still waiting for that wave to actually stick with consumers. Technology's there, consumers are not. Cryptocurrency, another perfect example. In the 90s, we had eCash as a concept before the term cryptocurrency. Then we had a crypto bubble over the last couple of years, and now everybody's down on it. It's in the trough. And we'll see if anything comes out of the crypto smoking pile of burning garbage. Maybe there's an Amazon in there. Maybe there's not. Maybe we'll take another 10, 20, 30 years. One of those spaces that we all wondered about was 3D printing. When we saw 3D printing, the ability to make something essentially in the physical real world uh, in 3D, we all thought, wow, this is crazy. It's like the replicator from Star Trek. And we saw a bunch of companies and a bunch of hobbyists start using them. And then it kind of fizzled out. You didn't hear about it anymore. Well, one of the leaders of the 3D printing space, uh, Max Lobowski. Bowski. Bowski. Lobowski. Lobowski. Bowski? Bowski. Lobowski. No, let's get it right. Lobowski. 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 Got it. Uh, well, welcome to the pod, Max. You co-founded and you're the CEO of Form Labs. You've been doing this for a decade almost. Eight years, yeah. Eight nine years. years. Yeah, getting there. And uh, you're now making over $100 million in revenue making 3D printers. You heard my little preamble there about how hard it is to have a new technology stick. With $100 million in revenues, it's obviously sticking now. But people have forgotten about it, and you live through the hype cycle. MakerBot, I guess, got bought for some large amount of money. Was it a billion dollars? Uh, about $500 million. $500 million. I think that was like a watershed moment. That was a big day in 3D printing. Big day in 3D printing. But $100 million cannot be faked. What are people paying you for? The printers, the ink, what? What is your business? So we sell, uh, we sell the printers. We also sell the materials that they use and then, uh, and then some services. Um, but, but the core of what we deliver is a complete system, a printer that uh, can fit on your tabletop, that uh, can basically take any 
3D design any CAD model you might have on your computer and produce it in a range of different materials, and, and we supply those materials for you. So you too. sell the printers, you sell the materials, and there were supposed to be these other two businesses that would emerge. Uh, one of them was like a marketplace, right? Or the other was software, right? Enterprise software. But I guess what I have to ask you is when I first saw this, these were nerds and geeks who were printing Christmas ornaments or little trinkets that had no value in the actual real world other than the fact that they were magically created. And it was fascinating, but they really had no value. Who's buying these printers? And what are they printing? And what value do those things create in the universe? Is it still hobbyists making trinkets and telling you they can make you an ornament for your Christmas tree? There is a there's a hobbyist segment yeah. and, and it emerged about ten years ago and that's a lot of what sort of triggered this wave of hype in 3D printing because people thought okay now you know it was used by industry before now there's uh, some sort of looks like consumer usage and maybe there'll be a mass consumer product. Mm. Um, Did that happen? Is there a that, mass? That didn't happen. Why do you think it didn't happen? It didn't happen because a 3D printer doesn't do enough yet to make sense as a as a home product. Got it. Uh, that I think the concept of a 3D printer is it can take, you know, it can create any 3D thing, any physical object you might want. And the reality of a 3D printer is that it can make a lot of different objects, um, but not any, and it fits in a certain size and made out of certain materials. And mm. um, and then there's also some skill still involved in, in running them. So all these things sort of put up barriers where yeah. the number of things you might want to make with it at home, it's, it's not quite there. So the friction, if I'm unpacking this, is it's still a little bit complicated a decade or so into this? We're maybe in the second decade? Well, so we're actually closer to four decades into well, 3D printing. Well, I'm talking about the second decade of consumers playing with it. Like when did consumers yeah. start having their first ones? It was the mid-2000s? Uh, yeah, mid-late 2000s. So 2007, eight. I guess I could give you the you know the, the the full history started in the 80s and for most of the history of 3D printing it's been hundred thousand dollar and up refrigerator sized piece of capital equipment mm -hmm. any big company that's doing some kind of product design whether it's Ford or Boeing or Apple has been using them since at least the early 90s um, and then uh, they kind of got better industry slowly grew and then getting to the late 2000s people started to make these uh, these desktop home printers yeah. and uh, came under 25k under 20k then under 10 uh, well even yeah even $1000 kits yeah. of parts that people were assembling right. um, the thing that really kicked it off was this open source project called reprap uh, reprap reprap yeah which stands for r i r e p r a p reprap yeah and what is what it's is supposed it? to, that's I think it's supposed to stand for replicating rapid prototyper mm -hmm. or something. The idea was you it was a a cheap one that would also be able to print all of its own parts so it would self replicate. Yeah, this is the basically the Skynet of 3D printers which yeah. made geeks go even more insane for it, this. They were like, "Oh my god, I can buy a 3D printer and print a 3D printer." Exactly. It's like inception of printers. It is inception of printers and is an awesome powerful idea and I think there's some like value to that long term, yeah. but the reality is you can you know, print a small portion of a 3D printer. I want to get back to the friction you mentioned earlier. One is too complicated. So it's much less complicated now. There's a lot of software out there for 3D models. There's a lot of things you can download off the internet. If you wanted a Darth Vader helmet, I'm sure you could go on the dark web somewhere and find a little model, even though Star Wars maybe didn't license it <laughs> properly. But somebody's <laughs> made a 3D model. I want to get into that too as well. Like If I'm doing... A clay, I might as well get into it right now. If I was making like a clay, non-commercial, 
you know, piece of pottery and I wanted to make a Boba Fett helmet or something. Like Star Wars is not going to come down on me. But if you made a Disney Boba has Fett, been fairly aggressive. But about yeah, this is what I heard. But I... if you make a Boba Fett helmet and put it on a three D printing site, they're going to come rain hell on you. Yeah, yeah. There's definitely a lot of new um, or kind of less well trodden legal territory being uncovered with uh, the three D content because yeah. you know th- there's certainly laws that govern this kind of IP, but. Um, it's not been really as tested or as enforced when it comes to 3D models, and yeah. so there, there, there's some new ground being gro- broken there. What do the but the reality is yeah. people who use 3D printers. Uh, the the bulk of the industry is still professionals, right? And uh, but for did the most that part, ki- was that part of what killed the hobbyist thing? Was that you couldn't really do fun IP on it? I or it was like underground? I don't think so. I no. think um, just a friction. It's of a it. successful niche in the hobby market. You know, it's a it's a several hundred million dollars of hobby business. I would just think that if Disney made one of these printers and said every month we're going to let you print out a new character from the Star Wars, you buy a subscription for whatever twenty bucks a month, you can print out the collectibles, and we're only going to allow ten thousand to be printed each time. Did anybody ever try that kind of like nonsense? There, some companies um, started going down that path. MakerBot uh, yeah. did, I think, get into some of sort of like consumer brand partnerships. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, I think it, it, it the printers uh, weren't and still aren't producing enough range of things. Like you can get a coarse plastic model that looks okay, like something. Okay, so that was my follow up to your friction thing. What is it with the materials that limits it today? I'm an investor in a company called Desktop Metal. They do metal, Mm -hmm. (laughs) which is really expensive and crazy. But on the consumer side, what is the limitation of the materials now? Uh, So, well, in the consumer... For the consumer, you mentioned like that, that that was like you could only make certain things because the printer was only able to print certain yeah. materials. It's printing plastic now, right? Yeah. It's so, a resin or something in little spools of string. That's one type of 3D printing. Yeah. That, that's uh, typically called fused deposition modeling where you extrude a little string of plastic. Yeah. We actually do a different process called stereolithography, which uses liquid resin and lasers to uh, build up a part. And we can make much higher resolution, much more high detailed oh. parts. Uh, but to to you know to answer about the materials, um, they we're working in plastics. There's a huge range of plastics. If you look around this room, there's strong and stiff plastics. There's uh, stretchy plastics. There's temperature resistant ones, and all flexible kinds of flexible for cables. All kinds. Yeah, of and all yeah. kinds of different properties there. And the range of plastics that all these things in this room are made out of is huge. There's like hundreds of thousands uh. of them commercially available. In 3D printing, it's a much smaller set of maybe hundreds, um, and they're often not quite as good. So you're mm. uh, often trying to like meet something, and so that's a big part of what we do. We're trying to advance the materials technology as well, improve the materials properties to get uh, closer to all the things you might want to make. So the hobbyist is 10%, 20% of your business, 50%? Of our our business, it's more like 5% or or less. What's the other 95%? I'm assuming it's professional. Yeah. And I always hear about like this – when I would be pitched on this 10 years ago as an angel investor, I would get pitched like, yeah, you know, BMW's got to print a part and – or this person, Tesla's got to build a new dashboard. So they're going to 3D print it. Is that actually the business? It's, it's like prototyping? It's a crazy huge range. So prototyping and product development is one big chunk. That's been part of 3D printing for a while. Um, we've got basically name a Fortune 500 company that makes stuff, and they're using our printers. Apple, for prototypes. Uh, for prototypes, for uh, short-run sort of beta testing. Yeah. For, oh, even for beta testing. For jigs and fixtures and tooling, so parts that are made that, that go into their factory to make 
the final product. Oh, that's fascinating. So, yeah. yeah, they have to make something to make something. Yeah. They use a 3D printer. Yeah. So like like Tesla, you know, Elon Musk talks about the, the machine that makes the machine. Right. Designing the factories that make. And so as for every part that's in the car, yeah. there's actually usually several more parts that were designed to make each one of those parts. Sure. And that you see a lot of 3D printing and, and things like that. Got it. Um, so that's like one really big chunk we call kind of engineering and manufacturing. Um, but then it, it goes all over the place from there. Another next really big chunk for us is dental. Um, I'm sorry. I thought you said dental. It's my bad ear. <laughs> dental. People yeah. are 3D printing. People are 3D printing teeth. dentures. People are 3D printing crowns. What? People are 3D printing night guards. Yeah. That's fascinating. So that whole thing where you have to wait three weeks for them to send that gooey mold that you put your teeth in. Yeah. They're going to be able to print it in their office. Now can be done totally digitally. So uh, whether you're printing it in the office or not, um, you're at least cutting out that goo step and you're using... um, Oh, and here's a picture of it. We have a picture of model resin. So this is a few of the different dental applications we have. These are models that you'd use to to test fit some other parts, Mm. uh, but we'll get to some of the more interesting applications. This is a surgical guide. So that clear part is actually used during a procedure to guide a drill into oh. your jaw. Is that when you're getting like a, uh, an implant, a root or an implant? Yeah. Oh. So normally without a, a guide, the dentist is actually freehand drilling into your jaw oh. and hopefully getting the, the oh. hole in the right place. But yeah. with a drill guide, it's, it's you know. So much better. There's a night guard. Um, How did you uh, – uh, what I want to ask you when we get back to this quick break is – when you started the company, did you even know that this application would emerge? Or when did you discover that dental could be a big part of this when we get back on This Week in Startups? Would you hesitate to go to the doctor if you had a broken arm? Of course not. Well, your mental health deserves the same attention. BetterHelp is the world's largest counseling service for improving your mental health. BetterHelp will help you assess what your needs are match you with a counselor from their network of licensed, accredited, and board-certified therapists, and start your communication with that therapist in under 24 hours. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It's professional counseling done securely online. How convenient. With BetterHelp, you can access a counselor network with a broad range of expertise. So they have people who know how to deal with entrepreneurs or maybe family issues. You get the idea. And avoid the nine to five of traditional therapy and message your counselor anytime. A lot of the reasons people don't go to therapy is because it's too inconvenient. They can't get off from work. The time is hard to get on the schedule. Here, you're doing it remote. You're doing it over your device. And so you're going to be able to do it on your schedule. You can easily change counselors if needed for free. And you can schedule a video or phone session with your personal counselor. It is so easy to do. But I went through the process just to see what it's like. And it is amazing how efficient uh, and elegant this product is. It's worth checking out. Um, You'll never have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room again, wondering if one of your friends is going to walk in. Instead, you're going to get therapy from the comfort of your own home for less than a traditional counselor cost. It's more efficient, it's faster, and it's even more affordable. BetterHelp's mission is to provide everyone with easy, affordable, and private access to professional counseling anytime, anywhere. So get started today. This week in Startups, listeners will get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash twist or Use the code TWIST, T-W-I-S-T, at checkout. That's better, H-E-L-P dot com slash TWIST to get 10% off your first month. 
Thanks again to BetterHelp for supporting independent media like This Week in Startups and for helping people. All right, welcome back to This Week in Startups. If you love the podcast, um, just keep listening to it. I'm not going to beg you for reviews or any nonsense. Like, listen, we're a thousand episodes in. If you haven't written a review by now, you're probably not going to write a review on iTunes. Uh, so I'm not going to sit here and pander to you and beg you to write one. But if you do write one, that's really nice. Uh, our guest today, uh, Max, is the CEO and co-founder of Form Labs. Form Labs started in 2011, doing over 100 million in revenue. You got 500 people working at this company. A lot of them in China. A few in China. A few in China. Mostly in Boston, ah. and then a bunch of other places around the world. You, you make the machines in China or in the United States? We make the latest generation in China. Ah. What's this coronavirus doing to your business? Anything? It's definitely not great. Um, How so? It's uh, it's definitely hurt uh, our supply chains, and we've got oh. kind of reduced production, and then we've got new products we're trying to ramp up in China that are oh. also slowed down. Um, so this is a real thing. When you have a business disruption like this, your factories are where? Not in Wuhan. In oh. No, in, in Guangdong, Shenzhen area. In Shenzhen area, yeah. Yeah. Over, yeah. So even there... People were told to stay home for some period of time. There's nobody at the factory, so basically production stopped. Yeah. So you got to sell what's in inventory. And then the state of the art of running a hardware company like this at scale is to have just-in-time manufacturing. What is that right? Yeah, you generally don't want to have a huge stock at any time. So you're, you're not usually have, you know, you don't usually have weeks and weeks of printers left in, in your warehouse at any time. So you can literally just keep a week or two of inventory and know that they're just going to be constantly trickling out from China? We're not usually able to run things that uh, close to the wire, but yeah. bigger companies can sometimes do that. Isn't that incredible when you think about it? We're making stuff around the world, and when the iPhone comes out, they're delivering it and packaging it directly in China to go to American consumers. And In days, yeah. In days, and they yeah. get made there, and then they're here in people's hands in the same week? Well, and the crazy thing is that to get to that iPhone... You're probably just thinking about that assembly, final assembly, but mm. there's parts in that iPhone that have been in production for six months or right. more, chips and things like that, and they're all kind of coming through the supply chain from all around the mm. world, meeting in one place, getting put in product, getting to a store, and in someone's hands. Yeah, this is what I understand like uh, Elon and, at Tesla and SpaceX really opposed to and one of his big uh, strengths of those companies is that they make a lot of the stuff. They sort of like relying on a supplier. Why don't we just get a printer ourselves and make this ourselves so we're not reliant on everybody? And so on the second floor, we can have the you know the the mount for the iPad in the Tesla Model Three like can just be taken and printed there. Yeah, and we, we've had to do a lot of uh, similar vertical integration where we make uh, a lot of the specialty optics components. Mm. Uh, we design them ourselves, things like lasers and mm. these special electric motors called galvanometers. And that's a lot of how we make our printers 10 times cheaper than what uh, printers used to cost. Let me ask you a candid question. When something like this happens and it, we start to realize, okay, this could be a new normal like every year or every five years, whatever, you know, could, could be something that becomes a regular occurrence. And given how expensive China is getting, it's getting more expensive, I understand. Do you have, have you had a discussion internally or even just yourself considered, I wonder if I should just make these in America, like Elon's making rockets and cars in America? Have you thought about insourcing it back here? We definitely constantly think about where to make our yeah. printer, also where to make the different components in it. We made our first product actually in the US, in California, the second generation in Hungary. In, in Europe and then the third generation in China. Uh, so as, you know, things change, it evolves. And, um, I think 
Uh, and then we actually make the materials that the printers use. We make those in the U.S. in our own facility uh, that, that we own in Ohio. Uh, oh, so, really? In Ohio? Yeah. yeah. So we own a chemical plant in Ohio, which is very high on the list of things I had no idea I would do <laughs> 10 years ago. A chemical plant. Yeah. Did you buy somebody else's chemical plant? Yeah, we acquired, we were working with a supplier to make our materials and we became a bigger part of the business and the relationship was really good. So we, we acquired them. Yeah, why not? Yeah. Go full stack. Hey, when we left for the break, I wanted to ask you about, um, and it circles back to the introduction where I talked about the false starts of new technologies, cutting edge technologies, obviously 3D printing starting in the 80s as you educated us uh, with, you know, 100,000 six figure units. Uh, and to now, when you started the company, did you have any idea in your mind that dental would become some portion of this? You know, we, we knew that dental was an important segment for 3D printers and specifically our type of high resolution You did printers. know that. We knew that, but we didn't Were think people doing it at the time or? They were doing it, but the, the problem is with those expensive machines with a limited set of materials, it took decades for like any commercial applications to, uh -huh. to happen. And they were only like a couple companies that had made it work. Um, but since, since we started, um, because the printers have become, we've made them far more affordable. They're far more widely available as well as the software and 3D scanning technology, which other companies provide. That's developed a lot. So now a lot more stuff is happening in dental. Um, many, you know, dentist dental labs are, are making things with it. What skill set is needed? to operate uh, in a vertical, w what individual do you need? Do you need somebody who's a 3D CAD modeler? Do you need somebody who's just, you know, got a basic Photoshop level, so to, you know, knowledge? So to actually run, just run a job, if you've got a model you want to print and you want to send it to the printer, that's quite simple, pretty much any, you know. If somewhat. you can use Amazon, you can use that. Not quite that good, but it's okay. pretty close. You Excel. can take the most Use people the can take the, the yeah most people can take the printer out of the box and start a print in fifteen twenty minutes. Got it. Um, but what about that just next level a, up when you have yeah. to make something custom? So what most of our customers want to do is they, they're making their own design, and, right? Um, they're they're making either a denture for somebody or they're making a prototype or product. Then you you start to want to learn how the printer works to be able to take advantage yeah. of its capabilities. What degree? Or skill do you need to do that? And what if you were putting a job description out for a 3D printer modeler? What would the job description say? The title? It could be a mechanical engineer. Um, oh, so that's sophisticated. Like, yeah, that would be the most typical thing. But there's so many types of people using. It. You know, there's there's again dentists who are who are literally uh, dentists are learning how to do yeah. CAD drawings. Yeah, there's kind of specialized dental CAD that literally lets them move teeth what? around and do things like that. There's dental CAD. Yeah, what's it called? Yeah. Uh, one company is called Three Shape that makes wow. it. Yeah, does that go on top of some other software, or is like is there some industry standard three D software that people? No, it, what it's are the really top two fragmented. Or three pieces of there's software? there's different CAD for every type of market. So there's oh. like mechanical CAD, dental CAD, movie and entertainment industry CAD. You're kidding! I had no we, idea. We take models from all those different software for different applications. What is the standard for a model? Like what's the PDF or the JPEG? Of it's called an STL. STL. But, yeah. And you just feed it in STL and it makes it. Yeah. And yeah, we, we take STLs from all the software. And then we have to have a lot of intelligence on our side of software to be able to deal with each one of those types of software kind of doesn't great, you know, output great STLs. So we have to process that. Yeah. And you also have to know if the person has made something that the printer's capable of printing. Yeah. And th that's actually a huge part of our innovation is in exactly that. Typically, oh, really? before yeah. we got started, uh, you'd have 
mechanical engineer type person who's trained on using a printer who looks at what you're trying to print, figures out how to orient it. Is it going to print it this way or that way? Uh, adds support structures that hold up the part and sort of designs a process for that printer to print that part. Uh, right. We had to automate all of that if we want, because making the printers cheaper doesn't necessarily make them more accessible if they're just as difficult to use. Right. That was part of what that hobbyist movement sort of missed is the printers got cheaper, but they were still really difficult to use. Right. So we've also made them more accessible and that um, it hasn't made them a consumer product yet, but it's gotten them to way more professionals and way more industries. Here's a stupid question. I've also been pitched on businesses or seen them at like demo days where they say, we make the machine, the cameras that will take this cup, do a bunch of cameras in a circle around it. I don't know what they call that. And Photogrammetry. Then, grammetry? <laughs> Photogrammetry. Photogrammetry. Yeah, it's when you take a lot of photos and reconstruct a 3D model from Got it. it. Do you make that device as well? Who makes that device? How much does that device cost? There's um, there's software you can literally use on your phone to, to do photogrammetry. It's, you know, you get mixed results, but... So you uh, just literally walk around a, 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 an object, yeah. You put it on a pedestal and you yep. walk around it. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, there's there's like this ecosystem of CAD software, 3D scanning technology. And so, you know, different companies are working on different parts of that. And we, we have to kind of work with all those, those yeah. companies. So we're getting to the point where somebody would be able to put a part for... You know, this is the other one I would get. It's like you're on a desert island or you're on Mars and something breaks. So instead of bringing, you know, to your Mars colony 10 different uh, backups of every single part, you just bring one 3D printer and then you put the part into the 3D printer. If you, if you hadn't already made a model of it, it just takes a picture of it and makes it. How far away from that? Uh, NASA's actually launched a 3D printer to the International Space Station uh -huh. already, and they, they've done some experiments with that. They've printed some some parts out. So it's um, it's getting there, yeah. The, the bigger part that's honestly missing from making something like that happen is you want to design those parts for 3D printing. It's hard to take something you made with uh. a different process and then just translate to 3D printing and get right. the same result. But if you designed your you know, Mars colony with everything designed to be 3D printed, then that that's pretty much a reality today. Oh, wow. So are people have, is there an application on planet Earth that does that? Where you're like, you know what, it's hard to get here. It's the North Pole, you know, and, and we're going to build our base station in, in Antarctica or the Arctic and say, everything's 3D printed, send a 3D printer, a bunch of spools uh, or whatever, resins. You, What do you call the resins you do? Uh, we call them resin, yeah. Yeah, resin. Okay, yeah. well, it's a technical term for resin. <laughs> uh, but it's not in the spool. It's in a liquid. It's kind of in this black cartridge. Really? Um, yeah, it show up. it. I want to see yeah. it. I, I didn't know they were in the goo. So this is sort of like Prometheus, right? The goo from Aliens? Uh, yeah, I mean- That's what you make in Ohio? looks- um, uh, it does look like the goo from Prometheus? It does look like the goo from Prometheus. I'll show you- uh, And just as a total aside- Max, how great is Prometheus as a science fiction film? <laughs> it's so underrated, correct? It is. It is great. It is underrated. I love. You've seen it. I'm going to set the over under at three point five. You've seen it more than three times or four times. How many times uh, have you seen Prometheus? At least twice. Uh, yeah. yeah, maybe three. Yeah, it's, it's good. so good. It's like Gladiator or Goodfellas when you're changing channels and you hit on Prometheus. The android, You're gonna watch it to uh, the end. Fassbender as an android, he's already kind of an. Fassbender is amazing. He's he is already an android. android, and so he like it works perfectly. Yeah, no, I mean he he's the android of actors. I'm sure he would appreciate that. Yeah, yeah. unlike Christian Bale. <laughs> <laughs> no, he, oh here we go. Look at this printer. So here's the pinpoint. Pr Look at that l l lattice work there. That looks like the. 
Eiffel Tower or something. Yeah, it, you can make really fine structures with this process. So this is what's inside the machine. There's this laser, we call it the LPU, light processing unit, that uh, scans the laser back and forth. And uh, then it comes into the bottom of, um, of a, ah. a liquid tank of resin. And uh, the part actually emerges uh, Right, from that resin. Yeah, T-1000 pool. style. Yeah, T-1000, yeah. right, like Terminator. Uh, and what are your... 3D printer start at now. What's the range of cost? Uh, starts at about three thousand five hundred. Cheap. Yeah. What yeah. are the what? Are, and that's for an industrial one, or that's more like that's, consumer. Uh, prosumer? That's our that's our flagship product. That's wow. you know bought by professionals in all these industries. No, it used to be that the spools were really expensive. You wanted to build like a hand, let's just call it like a a grapefruit size object. How much plastic resin? I know it depends on the density, but just ballpark. Is it one to ten dollars to print something in, in plastic, or is it fifty bucks to print something in plastic? Um, in you know this size part might be ten dollars a resin. We, huh. we charge one hundred and fifty dollars per liter, so mm. depends how you know big your part is. Right, and how dense it is. Right. Yeah. Uh, Typically, you're not making like solid. You know, you don't make a sphere. A solid right. sphere. When we get back from this uh, quick break, I want to know what you think of these. 3D, the large-scale 3D printers, the ones that can print a house or a car frame or something that's that large size. And if you think that those are going to have any impact on society, because when I look at those 3D printed houses, I see a prison cell, not a house. (laughs) They're made out of cement. But I'm wondering if you, since you're so visionary in this space, see a time when, you know... uh, 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 a small shed in your backyard or a bicycle or a sled will be printed uh, with a 3D printer when we get back on this week's startups. Shipping can be complex. We all know that. And with the uncertainty over costs and deciding which carrier to use, plus going and tracking your packages, things can get confusing quick. Well, with SendPro Online, it's easy to save time and money no matter where you send from, from letters to packages to overnights. And flats easily compare USPS, UPS, and FedEx in an all-in-one online tool. Print shipping labels and stamps from your own printer and track all of your shipments and get email notifications when they've arrived. Plus, plus when the USPS postal rates increased on January 27th, you'll still be able to access savings of up to 40% off USPS priority mail shipping and $0.05 cents off every letter you send just by using SendPro online. So here is your call to action. SendPro Online is only $14.99 a month, and listeners can get a free 30-day trial when you visit pb.com slash twist, pb.com slash twist. You'll also receive a free 10-pound scale to help you weigh your packages and accurately calculate the cost of shipping so you'll never overpay. I do that all the time. I'm putting too many stamps on things because I don't have that scale. Uh, until I went to pb.com slash twist. That's pb.com slash T-W-I-S-T. Experience the convenience of SendPro Online for yourself when you sign up for that free 30-day trial. We have it here. We use it. We love it. It works. I send people copies of my book all the time. We save a ton of money, uh, which is important. You're on a budget. You want to make sure you're frugal. Go ahead and go to pb.com slash twist. Okay, let's get back to this amazing episode. Welcome back to This Week in Science Fiction. Uh, Max is the co-founder and CEO of Formlabs. 500 people working there. Uh, you based in Boston? Mm-hmm. Is that where you, you were based too? You're in Boston? Yeah. yeah. yeah wow. Has it always Cambridge. been there? Uh, yeah, we got started there. It was me and two other MIT graduates. And oh. uh, so we kind of started down the street in a little co-working space. 
Who who were the first investors? How did you get that first seed round done? Uh, that's actually a really good story. So uh, I'm asking. We <laughs> Whoever they are, they're pretty stoked right now to be investors in this company. I hope they are. Uh, we were, you know, we were going through the like the the grueling um, pitching dozens and dozens of uh, investors over a period of months, struggling to get any traction. You know, this was especially in 2011. This was not yeah, like right a after hot the financial field. crisis, and right after Maker was sold, whatever number of years earlier. Uh, MakerBot sold several years after that. Oh, sorry. They yeah. started a couple of years before that, right? Yeah, they started a couple of years before that. But there was very little investment in this sort of hardware company. Mm-hmm. So we were struggling to get anyone to – everyone you know, came and saw a demo of the printer working. And they said, that's awesome. You guys seem really smart. I have no idea like what yeah. to, this even is or how to invest in it or anything like that. That's the problem with making something new. When it's that new, it gets people excited, but it also scares them from writing a check. Yeah. So what maniac gave you that first check and for how much? So we were like on literally the, you know, the 50th uh, investor meeting, something like that, um, over dinner at at Legal Seafood in Harvard Square. Yeah. And um, uh, going through the same- a little lobster roll, getting a little crab louie. Yeah, clam chowder. Oh, nice. And uh, probably, you know, going through the same pitch. And we got to the end of dinner. We knew like we had done this enough times to know this this one wasn't going anywhere. Uh, and went back to the apartment that me and my co-founder, David Craner, were living in. And um, he got an email from a friend of ours with like a retweet of an original tweet, the original tweet from at M Caper. And, um, you know, clicked on it and saw that, oh, that's Mitch Caper. We vaguely, you know, know yeah. who he is. And the original tweet says, um, on the patio at Legal Seafoods in Harvard Square, uh, overhearing two entrepreneurs pitching 3D printing. Anyone interested, or something like that? Whoa! And um, this is a great story. And we're, uh, we're like, wow, that Mitch Capor, of course, the founder of founder Lotus of Lo- Three. Yeah, founder of Lotus uh, Software. And, and I think what's really relevant for the story, he was part of the PC revolution. He was yes. part of taking mainframe expensive technology and making it accessible. Part of making killer apps for businesses. Yep. So there's actually a lot big parallel. When it was did. pretty muddy, people were like, oh, we can buy a $5,000 PC. Now what do we do with it? Exactly. It was the same hobbyist so, thing. So, uh, so um, you know, I, I being a pessimistic, skeptical engineer, uh, was just like laughed about it and said, okay, you know, whatever. Uh, but luckily David is a much more opportunistic, uh, guy. And he said, let's email him. Yeah. Slide and, to the DMs. Uh, let's go. Yeah. And so he found his email address, sent him an e- email and, um, and Mitch sent you a check. That was us. Mitch you and sent like? you a check. Actually first he wrote back, he wrote back somehow like in the middle of the night, I guess he was on California time or something like that. And, um, and he said, um, or he's a winner. <laughs> Could be. I mean, let's be honest. People who email back quickly and take decisive action are winners. And people who disappear for three or four days, they generally don't win as much. That might be me. So I don't know. You disappear for four days and don't check your email for uh, opportunities? Oh, I, I check it, but I, I can be slow to respond. To respond yeah. Uh, I, I like to think about things. Really? Well, see, if you're an investor, you got to respond quick. Yeah, I don't You got to seize the day. I don't think I'd be a good early stage investor. No. No, probably so not. So he wrote back right away. Snooze you lose. Actually, he wrote back right away and said, um, uh, you know, sounds interesting, but I know nothing about this, so I won't invest. 
Mm. So that that was his quick response. That's his quick no. Yeah. Now, did you take uh, it as a no or an opportunity? Uh, well, he to said, get a yes. "I'll uh, let's talk next time I'm in town." And right. uh, next time he was in Boston to to receive his star on the Kendall Square like tech uh, walk of. Oh, fame. is there such a thing? Yes. Yeah. Oh yeah, they're putting that up for me in Brooklyn. Yeah, oh, down yeah. on Shore Road. <laughs> It's like three famous people from Brooklyn. Yeah. Steven Seagal, me, <laughs> Ricky Schroeder. Um, so, uh, so he came by, uh, came by our, our office and, um, uh, and, you know, he listened to the story and by the end of it, to, to paraphrase, um, incorrectly, Mitch was like, uh, you know, this is just like it was when we were inventing the PC and like, Story I, I, I want to get involved. Yep. And, um, all of a sudden uh, you got a Hyundai 250. He usually puts in a little uh, 250. Uh, yeah. I think it was 300,000 that he Perfect. put in. Yeah. Um, I know my investors. And then at about the same time, um, uh, Joey Ito, who yes. uh, was joining MIT as director of the Media Lab, right? Um, where we came out of. Uh, oh, you were in the Media Lab? Yeah. Yeah. Tell people the what lab. the Media Lab is and, uh, why people are so enamored with it, why you chose it to spend two or three years of your life. The Media Lab is a really interesting, unusual place. I don't really unusual know. Unusual is a good one, yeah. I don't really know any other place like in the world. So it's it's a kind of a research department at, um, at MIT that has uh, 20, 30 professors and like 150 grad students. And uh, what's unusual about it? One super cross disciplinary research. There's everything from like biotech to like robots making music and like everything in between 3D printing. Uh, and another thing that's really unusual about it is a good chunk of the funding comes from this sort of corporate sponsorship model where right. um, it's been called a country club for tech companies. They each where, put a million, two million, five million in, and that's the budget. Yeah. And then uh, they they put it in without a lot of constraints, and then the Media Lab sort of distributes it uh, yeah. amongst this professor. So there's a lot more flexibility, a lot more open-ended research, a lot. It's generally centered around like human-computer interaction, but but really broad. Yeah. Um, amazing tools, amazing smart people. Really it's just fun to walk around the lab. I've been there many times where you just walk around, meet students, and they're working on their projects. And yeah. that's what the big Microsofts or Cisco's or whoever's writing checks do. Yeah. They walk around, they get inspiration. They don't have ownership in the projects, but they get to meet you early. Yep. They get to meet you early. They have some kind of IP license, but that's really, they just want to be there. Yeah. Uh, so you were working on the 3D printing there? Uh, not really. Oh. I, I was working on- What was your on, project? Uh, I was in a part of the media lab called the Center for Bits and Atoms, which is sort of like yep. a hard tech group there. Um, I'm sure and, that was Nicholas Negroponte's thing, because his whole book, Being Digital, was the seminal book. I don't know if you remember this, you're a little younger, but- Back in 94 or 5, he wrote a book called Being Digital, and it was basically the book you handed to people who didn't understand what the internet was or what the possibility was here, and he just explained that atoms were going to be turned into bits, yeah. and that music was going to go from a record to being bits, and books would be bits. You know, stuff we take for advantage now. Photos would be bits. Movies right. would be bits, and you so could that- move them. The professor I worked with, Neil Gershenfeld, he was oh, yeah. kind of one of the early early professors in the Media Lab who um, who had uh, who had really pushed that. His kind of whole research group is around bits being more like atoms and atoms being more like bits, using things we learn from com- computation to change how we make things. So that's like what three D printing is, um, and also vice versa, making computation reflect more how we make things. Um, anyway, interesting topic. But uh, I worked on. Yeah, modular- Joey had a fund, so he invested too. Yeah, he invested too. Um, 
and uh, and with the with those two guys involved, then uh, they told us to go up on Angel List, which was just like wow. It was like only a year old, I think, at the time. Yeah, um, I was the first syndicate. I mean, after Naval, like the internal syndicate, I was the first external yeah. syndicate. Yeah, yeah. So we went up there. At that point, it was just basically like a like a profile page. Like there was profile no page. Was no like LinkedIn. Yeah, no function to like support nope. investing, um, uh, and like. You know, people started rolling in after Mitch and Joey were were involved, and we ended up with uh, uh, I think sixteen different investors. That was mind blowing at the time. I guess around here these days, this is not nothing special. But no, like my, to get to get sixteen like, investors, pretty cool. To do forty five, well, to do like a forty five minute call with some guy in Japan, and then him wire like a hundred thousand dollar check Crazy. later. That yeah, that I I could not believe that uh, that that happens. Yeah, pretty bizarre. And you just raised fifteen million dollars at a billion dollar valuation, mm-hmm. which my math's not always perfect, but I think that's one percent or so, one point five percent. I thought when you hit that unicorn status, you would raise one hundred fifty and dilute ten percent. What? Why raise fifteen million? Are you Pegasus? You're being super frugal. What's <laughs> even the point of raising fifteen when you're at a billion dollar valuation? We are, we are quite frugal. Uh, the, Profitable the- or close? We are most of the money we spend comes from customers. Let's let's put it. It, put it like so that. So spending distance. If you want it to be profitable, you could. If we weren't investing as heavily in R and D, we could. Yeah. yeah. Um, so back to the question: Why, why raise fifteen? Yeah. You gonna go out and uh, raise money? Why not raise a hundred? The, the big reason for that round um, was actually to get uh, Jeff Immel, the former CEO of GE, wow. involved in Form Labs. Uh, so he he uh, he's a venture partner at NEA. And yeah. um, and a woman named Dana Grayson at NEA. Actually, she's starting her own fund now. Uh, she led the round, and 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 Jeff joined the board. I thought that they were those type of big firms. What you hear on the streets is they need to have ten percent ownership. They need to be able to put in fifty million dollar checks, or it's not worth it. How do you convince somebody because NEA has got multiple billions of dollars in their funds? How do you get them to write such a small check? And have such a small ownership percentage was that an issue? And why do we hear that issue constantly? Um, yeah, it's definitely a, a point you negotiate on. I think they have their their business model where they sort of have a target investment, but every company's different, every situation's different. So there's always some some flexibility there. And we had just raised um, thirty five million dollars a few months before that, so it. it's kind of a fifty million dollar round. So it's a little top period. off at a, at that valuation, yeah. and then. How do you look at this business now that you're in your, you know, getting close to that decade, people expect it to go public or have an exit, and you're raising at a billion? You know, we just saw Masayoshi-san and SoftBank kind of back off a little bit of, like, some of these later stage rounds, and people are generally questioning, like, is it a good idea to stay private that long? What kind of advice are you getting in this sort of roller coaster of the industry changing from growth at all costs, go big, stay private, to get profitable? And how do you think about it personally and how you want to live as a founder? Uh, we've always been a very um, disciplined uh, company that's that's focused on, uh, again, most of the money we spend coming from customers rather than burning lots of investor capital. We That's been true since basically like, Year one, mm. we we launched Kickstarter. We got started end of 2011, and by the end of 2012, we had taken three million in pre-orders, um, and with you know less than two million in equity raised. Wow! So, uh, so we've been selling stuff and trying to build our business, maybe not organically, but trying to build it sort of sustainably from the beginning. And um, I think uh, 
I think that's the right way to do it in this industry. There, there's certainly like, you know, if you're building a consumer web thing where scale really matters and network effects really matter, like maybe it makes sense to lose a billion dollars before you, you know, Turn start on advertising and yeah. piss everybody off. And I think one of the really big mistakes that that's happened in uh, uh, venture capital in the last couple of years is that. The people have assumed that model could be applied to a lot of other industries where it, it just doesn't work. And you right. end up – all that money you burn doesn't actually get you some value that stays. Like it might have helped drive some revenue but not in a, in a very sticky, sustainable way. Yeah, investing to have a billion people on Facebook or 100 million people using Snapchat, we pretty much know how the advertising world works. You can pretty much model it. But if you're doing something new like Uber or Lyft – and, or DoorDash and Uber Eats or whatever it is. It's like, yeah. Yeah. Do do we know that losing all this money makes sense or not? And the public market seems to think not. Subsidizing rides for years and years and years, it's unclear like what yeah. value is left today. Whereas for us, when the money that we're losing is primarily going into investing more heavily in R&D and, you know, after a few years of R&D, we have a very clear thing left over, which is yes. a product that we're selling, right. which is better than, you know, what exists out there. So I think we're, we try to stay disciplined. We, we don't try to lose, you know, when we're selling in terms of sales and marketing activities, we make sure we don't lose money there because that right. just doesn't make sense. Uh, and then how do you think about from this point forward? Because that's the big question today. Should you go public? Should you stay private? And you're kind of at that point where it used to be when you hit 25, 50 million in revenue, went public, you're over a hundred million in revenue now. Are you feeling pressure to go public or exit because you got Boston-based company, like they're not used to $100 billion companies. They they probably very we, much would appreciate a quick you're billion right. to $5 billion exit. You're right. A lot of Boston investors are not uh, used to that sort of thing, which yeah. is probably why we have very few Boston investors. <laughs> exactly. I, no offense to Boston investors, but they do. They are scared. There, there's some, there are a few great ones there. But they're um, scared. A uh, lot of them are scared. Yeah. All uh, downside protection. Yeah, and so we uh, we have ended up with more Bay Area mm. investors. Um, so, uh, yeah, so how do you think about that? Yeah, you think, I, I you think file, or are you think you're going to just stay private for, for, a for me in terms of like my personal goals, and I think um, also reflect what most of the people at the company are interested in. Going public or staying private is sort of orthogonal to the goal. The goal is build more awesome stuff and get it to lots of people and make an impact with that right. and do that at a bigger scale, make more products, get them to yeah. more people and keep keep going yeah. there. Um, so you get the when, reality whether of the we board go, pressuring you a bit, like, hey, we've yeah, got to do well, something. So the good thing is we do have these really long-term focused investors. Oh, There's good. not uh, you know not a huge pressure there. As long as we're growing and, and, mm. uh, and making progress, then you know they, they have... They, they have the ability to wait. Um, and I think board and investors are aligned that like, uh, you know, going public has to, to, to make sense for, for the company doing sure. it too early. It's a huge overhead and a huge distraction. If a company can't show kind of really uh, regular, predictable uh, revenue and earnings. You feel you have predictable revenue now or is, is the industry still emerging and you're still figuring it out? Uh, I think um, – we shouldn't be going public today. Yeah. That's so, I mean, I I would, it goes back to the sort of opening of the show when I was talking about, hey, is, how predictable is it? You're still in that point of time where, you, you know, maybe dental's the entire business. Maybe there's an entire business just on dental globally, you know, yeah. and like th that's a hard decision for you to make as a founder who loves 3D printing, right? Like if you're just going for the IPO, 
then logic might say, just pick the one vertical that works best and ignore everything else and just be a dental company. And I think a lot of our success has been actually avoiding that Mm -hmm. uh, trend. That's a a lot of the advice we've received. A lot of the sort of like classic advice for a B2B company is sort of to like pick one vertical and focus on and specialize in it. And that I think is how a lot of the uh, existing 3D printing companies have been built up. Um, They're they're not always just focused on one vertical, but they sort of align their products and and their go-to-market and everything around that. And they've missed the opportunity to do this broad-based investment in in one technology platform where if we we actually put, even though we are not one of the bigger companies in the industry, we put more R&D into a single printer model than anyone else. And that's part of how we deliver much more printer per dollar than anyone else. It's sort of, you know, Apple is kind of the the best example of this where they have less SKUs than companies with far less revenue than them. And so they get to invest so much in making every single product they make the best by far. Yeah. And when you look at AirPods, it's like there's a hundred knockoffs on Amazon right now. And just in terms of elegance and, you know, what just works. Yeah, the the AirPods work the best. But it is interesting, the knockoffs. When we get back from this final break, I want to talk about winning an Oscar <laughs> with 3D printing, in part. The the large uh, printing thing, I forgot to follow up on that one, printing large things in your driveway. Uh, and then how do you think about uh, being in a hardware business? And everybody always talks about, like, you build something great, it gets knocked off in China. And do you have, do you have to protect against that? Uh, And are you experiencing that when we get back on This Week in Startups? What do companies like Ring, Hint, and Tecovis have in common? Well, they all use NetSuite to accelerate their growth. Successful companies know that in order to grow faster, you must have the right tools. If you want to take your company from 2 million to 10 million or from 10 million to 100 million in revenue, NetSuite by Oracle gives you the tools to turbocharge your growth. With NetSuite, you'll get the full picture of your business, finance, inventory, human resources, customers, and more. It's everything you need to grow in one place, right from your phone or your computer. NetSuite gives you the visibility and control you need to make the right decision and grow with confidence. That's why their customers grow faster than the S&P 500. NetSuite is the world's number one cloud business system, trusted by more than 19,000 companies. It's also the last system you'll ever need. NetSuite, business grows here. So here's your call to action. Schedule a free product tour right now and receive your free guide. Six ways to run a more profitable business at netsuite.com slash twist. And you know you want to run a more profitable business because funding is hard. It's being a little bit of a challenging environment in 2020. So learn how to be more profitable by going to netsuite.com slash twist. That's netsuite.com slash twist. And thanks for supporting the pod. I really appreciate that. Let's get back to this amazing episode. All right. Welcome back to This Week in Startups. Hey, uh, speaking of 3D printing, this is crazy. We're doing our research. Turns out in this movie about Megyn Kelly, what was that called? Bombshell. 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 I got 15 minutes into it and it was just super boring. I haven't finished it. Have you seen it? I haven't seen it. Yeah. Anyway. um, So it turns out that somebody 3D printed, if you're watching the pod on on, um, uh, youtube.com slash this uh, weekend, or if you go to uh, thisweekendstartups.com, you look at the video, you can see this uh, 3D printed nose implant that goes inside of uh, Charlize Theron's nose. There's her normal nose, which looks perfect. 
Uh, absolutely, whatever she paid for, it's totally worth it. Uh, and then here is, <laughs> maybe it's a natural. Here's Megyn Kelly on the left. No, Megyn Kelly on the right. The real Megyn Kelly's on the right. It's hard and her to nose, say which. It is. Her nose is pointing up a little bit. You see more of her nostrils. And I guess they did that to Char- Charlize Theron. Charlize. And her nose is pointing up a little bit, so you can see her nostrils a little bit. And they did it through 3D printing this. And the person, Kazu, uh, which is Kazu Studios on, I guess, the Instagram, he won for what? Best makeup? Hairstyle and makeup. Hairstyle and makeup for making her look like that. In part, I think the hair is also, but in part because of this nose implant. And you were wondering if there would be an application. <laughs> the application is winning Oscars, people. <laughs> Yeah, if if there's nothing else 3D printers can do, at least they can help win an Oscar. It's hilarious. This was really, really funny because I, I spotted this tweet like a few weeks before the, the Oscars and and I looked at the part and saw the at Forum Labs tag and it's just a such a kind of ridiculous sounding use of our, our printer. And then a couple weeks later, I was watching the Oscars and saw the guy win and they like mentioned specifically the nose, uh, the nose piece. What an advantage. I mean, they're, in a way, she kind of cheated. And she might, this might be like a doping scandal, right? Like, oh, they're probably going to disallow 3D printing from the gonna, makeup award just, you know after what? that. It's, it's too, too easy good. to get an yeah, Oscar now. If you 3D print it, you got too much edge, right? Yeah. Uh, no, I th- didn't. Who was it? Marlon Brando used to put cotton in his cheeks. I think that's how he did The Godfather. Yeah. They they're say, like, well, 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 well. <laughs> come to me on the day of my daughter's wedding. Exactly. Uh, what if he had 3D printing? If he had 3D printing, they could have just 3D printed some stuff. He wouldn't have to put a bunch of cotton in his yeah. Mouth. What about we, this? We actually have a lot of uh, a lot of customers in uh, in Hollywood. Um, we've got like a list of most of the major sort of Marvel action movie type of movies are using our printers. Oh, really? In, in their production makes total um, sense. If you're building the Iron Man suit, you use Formlabs. One one awesome thing on our website, we've got um, the the Demi Gorgon from um, uh, from Stranger Things, the big uh, monster yeah, yeah. with a face that opens up. The yeah, studio. Spoiler that- alert. <laughs> Sorry, I just ruined it. For you. No, we know. <laughs> the studio, you haven't seen it by now. The studio that designed that used our printers ah. throughout the process, and they made some amazing models. Um, yeah, so, just think uh, what this would have done for horror films in the 80s. Like all that pinhead stuff and whatever, they would have just been 3D modeling, all of this stuff. Um, what about these large-scale ones? Everybody's seen, and we can pull one up here, um, 3D printing of houses with cement. Barely feels like 3D printing to me. It feels like just cement being done in a square how large have your printers gotten and you know we're sitting here at a table that's whatever five by five you think you're going to have these like five by five ten by ten printers is there demand for those and will be people printing like the next tesla car in a three instead of making a clay just make a giant 3d are there giant 3d models being made there uh there are uh 3d printers from like all sizes uh you know, from what we make up to to house mm-hmm. size things, um, I think you can call them three D printers, but it's better to think of them in terms of like robotics and industrial automation because uh. um, they don't don't. It's not really similar to using our printer. It's a sort of a specialized thing that you'll design yeah. a house to be made with that process. Got it. Um, I I'm optimistic for that in general. I mean, I see robots and automation changing the way we make everything right and, and i think that that's an amazing yeah. positive thing they just so ugly looking like when you watch <laughs> this getting made it's literally just like the slurry of cement going in a circle 
and it looks terrible. It's giant, and it looks like it takes. Uh, this looks like much more effort to build a prison cell than <laughs> building something actually that people would want to live in. You're certainly not going to build a complete structure just by depositing concrete, but no. but that's part of the pro. That could be part of the process. Could be part of the process. Yeah. Okay, we're going to build huge walls. Okay, <laughs> 3D printed the entire way. But that's actually the interesting thing about it is that it just keeps moving and building and moving and building. So there is this concept like, oh yeah, we just go to the desert and. We have these refugees coming across the border and we can make a thousand houses for them or something. Uh, yeah, I guess I'd... on the inside, they... No, it still looks terrible. Nice interior decoration. <laughs> it looks like they got some cheap Ikea and threw it in there. And if you put some throw pillows, everything looks better with a couple of good throw pillows. So, But it still looks like a prison cell with, th with throw pillows. Uh, maybe it would work for like a beach hut or something. There's also other kinds of structures like storage and sure. industrial structures storage and things perfect. like that. Yeah. Hey, I don't want to nag it too much. Uh, the, of the founder who made this, I, I still appreciate the technology and the and the effort you put into it. I just don't want to live in a... It is a, it's a little frustrating that 3D printing, everyone kind of tries to apply that word to any sort of new yeah. fabrication process because it's a better sounding world than like house manufacturing. House robot. Yeah. Cement robot. Yeah. Bricklayer. Um, and, uh, what about this, like, you know, hardware is so hard building a hardware company. You need tons more money. You have to sell it for a high price. Everybody undersells like the actual cost of it. And then the big critique from investors is always, isn't it a race to the bottom? You're going to make this thing and the same factory you build it in is going to build fake ones at night, or they're going to steal your IP or somebody's going to knock it off and reverse engineer it. How do you protect against that issue? Is that why you make the lasers here in America so they don't get reverse engineered? Uh, we, we make the resin here. Um, it's, it's, it's a challenge. Any type of business has to kind of understand what, what's its advantage, what allows it to charge more money than other people, what, what is it doing better. And, um, and if you can't uh, – if other people have access to those uh, you know, same abilities, then, then you're going to lose that advantage. Yeah. It will be a race so, to the bottom. I, I think – I think that's great that that happens because that means more great things get produced for everybody. Yeah. And what that means for us, if we want to keep having an advantage, we've got to keep moving forward. Yeah. And we've got to keep investing in, in new technology and, and, and constantly be ahead. Um, fortunately, it's, it's, it's more than just copying the hardware we have because there's software that drives it. There's the materials that go in it. Even the hardware we have, there's a sort of a whole set of hardware at the factory that calibrates it and measures ah. it to, to get it to the performance level um, it's at. And so there, there's a lot of pieces to, to copy there and we're constantly iterating and improving on them and um you know i think it frankly it's tougher to build a profitable you know high margin business in this space than it is in a in a SaaS or you know that that sort of business um but for me it's more rewarding so yeah, yeah that's what's why. the what's the vertical the holy grail of 3d printing like is there a vertical where people are dreaming in science fiction, you know, back to Prometheus, like in Prometheus, they're obviously making weapons technology, that's biology. And it seems far fetched. But here we are, people are building heart valves with 3D printers. Uh, I think the heart muscle is pretty easy to replicate. It's not like brain cells or something. Um, and then there's so people are putting 3D kind of not organs, but pieces of organs, I think is the best way to say it. They're also talking about 3D printing, you know, fish, you know, and 
meat think, steaks. Is any of that going to happen in our lifetime? Is that the holy grail? I think um, – I don't know if there's like one holy grail because there's so many capabilities. You, you want to print living tissue. You want to print plastics. You want to print metals. So maybe sort of the general idea of like the holy grail of digital fabrication is getting closer to the point where making hardware is like making software where you design something digitally and then, uh, you know, with software, you press compile or you, you know, or, uh, you, you build it or publish it and it's uh, it's done that mm. that's the working thing uh, with no steps or time involved with hardware there's a lot of work that goes into kind of translating that design to a real thing and the closer we can get to going from an idea in your head to a design on the screen to a real thing uh, that 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 will enable enormous progress and you know all over humanity all you know all parts of technology everything that we want if we can uh if if we can shorten that that huge process to go from a, an idea to a real thing yeah. that was a really powerful well, idea you saw the 3d printing chocolate stuff and what do you think of that like 3d printing steak or something eventually is that coming or not where would you put that over under uh, 5, 10, 15 years? Again, a there's a lot steak? of things that are like called 3d printing that just like don't have a lot to do uh, make making food Automatically, you know, making artificial yeah. meat without animal products—that's awesome. That's great. Yeah, um, it's you could call it three D printing, but it's like nah. we have nothing to do with. My each favorite other. of all of this was when they were when Westworld came on and they showed making the androids, and they're like doing it like with string, yeah, like a, and it is kind of three D print. That felt like a great interpretation I, of where I this like, could go. I like the the way they visualized it. It was like a little more in depth and realistic than most most of these visualizations in sci fi are just yeah. like literally coming out of goo with like no explanation of what's yeah. happening. But they sort of give you some idea that there might be a technology that could do something like that one day. Yeah, I thought that was the other great interpretation of this from a science film. What's the other great 3D printing from a, an older science film? Star fiction? Trek? The Star no. Trek replicator? No, much better. The fifth element. Uh, oh, yeah. Remember the scene they, where there's only the arm left? Yeah. Go that, pull that up, Nick Pooh. That was actually oh, a similar to Westworld. They have these like robots yeah. stringing out the. Yes. That is. That was the, probably the best. Because it was like all they had left was the arm. And they 3D print the entire... Fifth Element is one of my all-time favorite movies. It's so good. I mentioned that I've been the Big Lebowski for Halloween. Yeah. Well, I've also been Lilu for Halloween. Just with tape? Uh, I, yeah, the, yeah, that one. The, I want to go as the guy... one. When she wears just the bands of tape. That's when she... Uh, Wait, Lilu is the... Lilu is the lady, yeah. Yeah, the I, orange I, hair. I, yeah, and she has this like orange V-strap yeah. dress thing. I, is that I, on I the internet, that, that picture? No. It won't it's not be. on the end. It never I mean, will be. I hope not. That is an inspired choice. I want to go as the guy who's like, it's so great. It's so great. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> What's his name? Ruby Rod. Yeah, Ruby It's Rod. Ruby Rod. Yeah. Wait, yeah. It's so green. I love that Ruby Corbin Rod character. Corbin Dallas, my man. <laughs> what did he say? Corbin Dallas, my man. Corbin Dallas, my man. <laughs> we're here on the outer rim. Wherever they were. <laughs> it's such a great film. Who is the director of that? Uh, uh, Luke Besson. Luke Besson. He killed it. I mean, look at this, 3D printing. This yeah. was so well done. Here comes the goose slurry from Ohio. Yeah. <laughs> Here is a hand that was controlling like either a weapon or like the speed, and it's building and, the bone what, first. What's nice about this is they're showing multiple processes coming together. This is really how complex things are made by people today. It's not just like one machine that... Boom. Finishes the thing. Yeah. Yeah. One for the combine. brain, one for the yeah. bone material. Uh, 
So well done. And and here comes oh, the, the, uh, the the meat puller. The meat puller, <laughs> which pulls and straps the meat onto the body. <laughs> uh, for those of you listening, if you haven't seen the scene from the Fifth Element, it's great. Oh, there she is. Oh, that yeah, maybe that's a uh, she's nude there, so that would be a first for this week in startups. We're gonna go ahead and say edit that out. And he, oh yeah, he's about to press the button to destroy it because they can't believe that it's a it's a human it's female. a human form. And mm-hmm. then the straps come. Here's your straps for your outfit. We can I, I include wore the straps. A, diff- a different one. Equal- oh, it was the orange ones. Yeah, when she wears orange. Yeah. yeah, such a great scene from it. It's amazing the world we live in now. Like we literally live in the future. We're so close with this stuff. Getting there. What do you think? How old are you? You're 30? 30, 32. 32? What do you think? 50 years from now, you're 82, and you're like the guy, uh, Anthony Hopkins from, you're Anthony Hopkins or your Wigan. Why am I Anthony? Your Wigan. Wigan? What's the guy from uh, Prometheus? Wigan? Wigan. Oh, oh yes. Yeah, Wyland. Yeah. Wyland. Wayland, yeah. Wayland. Yeah. Wayland or Wyland? You're like the Wayland guy giving the TED speech, but then at the end of Prometheus, he's like 90 years old and he wants to meet yeah. his maker. Yeah. When you're that age, you're Anthony Hopkins in Westworld, you're a while in, you end of your career, 82, what will 3D printing look like? Take a minute to think that through. What will we be 3D printing in 50 effing years, 60 effing years? I think years? it's so hard to predict at I that I know. That's frame. why it's so interesting. We're here in 2020. Remember, 50 years would be 1970, 60 years would be 1960. What did computers do in 60? What are they doing now in our pockets? I think I think most of what we're imagining is really there, like printing, uh, you know, living tissue and and you know creating organs. That that's wow. definitely happening. Multi-material printers or assembling parts automatically to get to like uh, completely finished products um, straight from digital designs and um, you know automation of all these processes. So mm. so humans can focus on the the most interesting part, which is designing, creating, cre- yeah. you know, coming up with the idea. I'm going to just go ahead and advise you as your counsel here. You do not need to go find the engineers. Nothing good will come Uh. from finding the engineers because the engineers were made by somebody. Uh That's what I really wanted to see in the Prometheus follow-up. They did the aliens resurrection or something. It was terrible because he wanted to make like the Prometheus follow-up that would be a science not about the aliens. And they forced him to make it into this hybrid. And it was like, just you saw it, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, just, wasn't as good. Yeah. It wasn't as good. They should have just gone fully about who made the engineers. The engineers made the aliens. Who made the engineers? But there were two fast benders, though. <clears throat> so that, that might. Double the fast bender is never bad. Yeah. I mean, he's not getting an Oscar, but, you know, it's just a little robotic, that performance, we'll be honest. So apologies to Fassbender and to uh, Ben Horowitz, who we couldn't get to today. Hey, Max, continued success. You're hiring. Yep. Yeah, we are looking for the engineers, actually. You're looking for the engineers. Yeah. Yeah, the, the nine-foot-tall ones that are just albino. I mean, if they're really good engineers, any, we'll any take size and shape, yeah, They color. can work remote. Yeah. So whatever galaxy they're in, <laughs> we have Zoom, we have Slack. You could work yep. remote like the engineers were working. Jobs at formlabs.com. Please, uh, yeah. please send us a message from uh, whichever planet you're on. Absolutely. And y- as we were talking before, that opening sequence of Prometheus, such a good scene. Yeah. Where the engineers are drinking that biological device and the body breaks down and he falls and into Sacrificing the water. themselves to, to, to create life. On Earth. Yeah. Such an incredible metaphor. I mean, this mm. is why really Scott's a genius. Blade Runner, Gladiator, Black Hawk Down, and Prometheus. Look at the scene yeah. where there's a giant waterfall and there's no life on Earth. 
And what people didn't under people don't understand this movie because people are dumb. They're not paying attention. But you watch these engineers walk to the edge of the cliff and he takes out his little glass of, you know, goo, which is kind of like a nano cup of tea. Goo. His nano goo. It's like nano goo, right? Mm-hmm. He's got his little cup. And then it's kind of living. And it's like, oh boy, this is the end for me. I'm going to drink it. Look at the traps on that guy. I don't know what the story is with that guy, if he's like a real guy. And then the ship leaves and he is sacrificing his life. His body starts to break down almost immediately, Jeez. violently. You've never seen this, Nick? No. Producer Nick hasn't seen Prometheus. Look at his on this guy. Dude, he's diesel. Well, the, the reason you have to think that is because he was also made. The engineer was also engineered by somebody. And then through his veins, you can see the goo is turning into life. And then it all the DNA strands break down and reconfigure in the... Uh, ocean at Earth, and then you have to think maybe they already engineered Earth a little bit. I, I guess that. you know on the fifty-year time frame, the way life makes things by building things bottom up at the molecular level—that's something that that uh, humans are not even close to do. Building and, from the yeah, like three D printing yeah, molecules. Yeah, and making something that is designed the way we want it down to individual molecules. Uh, I don't know if that's happening on a fifty-year time frame, but I hope I hope so. That'd be incredible. We would literally be able to just print a new liver or a brain. God forbid you get Alzheimer's or dementia, like one of these horrible things. Can you imagine a brain transplant? Or you drink the goo or they shoot the goo in your brain and it rebuilds your brain like over time and transfers your memories from your old dying brain into the new refreshed brain. Sounds like the plot of the next uh, Ridley Scott movie. That's actually a really good one. If you could build a second brain and it would re-scaffold your brain and make it like a hundred times more powerful. You gotta get something to work on. Go raise more money. Right, you should have raised right. more than fifteen million. You could be working on this already. That's true. I better get back to Boston. And get get to back work. to Boston. All right. Hey, uh, thanks for coming out. Thanks for doing the pod. It's fascinating stuff. Uh, and keep grinding it out. If you need a job, jobs at formlabs.com. I mean, it's a rocket ship. It's gonna go hundred x from here. You heard it from me first. And uh, congrats to uh, Mitch Capor and, and Freda of Capor Capital on another huge win. It's another unicorn on their belts. We'll see you all next time. Bye bye. <laughs> 